Rachel. Uh, it's great to see you all today. Thank you for coming and putting up with all these dis different restrictions, but we're so glad that you're here. Uh, this month marks 10 years of Liam Garvey being associate pastor of Charlotte Chapel. And uh, I want to just publicly acknowledge this and uh, express my appreciation for Liam and Catherine and the little Garveys. Uh, and what a blessing it's been to have Liam's ministry in our congregation over the last 10 years. Uh, there's so many good things have happened because Liam has uh, faithfully worked amongst us. You're much loved, brother, and much appreciated. And just as a token of that, I want to just give you a wee gift. I've hand sanitized before touching it, and I'm putting it there for you to pick up later. Anyway, thank you. Let's pray on for another 10, shall we? Who is the goat? That's the question. Who is the goat? Is it LeBron James or Michael Jordan? I mean, this is the, this is the big debate in the basketball world of the NBA. Uh, you understand what goat means, of course, don't you? I didn't when I first heard it. It's the greatest of all time. That's who the goat is. And uh, who is the greatest is just one of those great discussion topics people love to have. Who's the greatest politician? Uh, who's the greatest president? Uh, we know who thinks he is, but who is the greatest president? Who is the greatest prime minister? But before we sort of go into discussion groups uh, later to discuss who is the goat disciple of Charlotte Chapel, um, we need to be clear about the criteria, don't we? I mean, how does God measure greatness? How does Jesus define greatness? Well, that's one of the things we discover here in Mark's gospel. This teaching from Jesus is part of a section uh, that starts in verse 30 and ends in verse 50. And, and you can see that by noting this journey. So if you look at uh, chapter 9, verse 30, they left that place and passed through Galilee, Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples. And take a look at where the section ends. It's in chapter, uh, there's a new section starting in chapter 10, verse 1. Jesus then left that place and went into the region of Judea and across the Jordan. Again, crowds of people came to him, as was his custom. He taught them. So this is a unit of teaching that we need to try and understand as a whole. I started the week thinking I was going to do a subsection, but as I started, I realized, no, we have to do the lot together. Uh, this is a journey uh, where Jesus is moving from where his ministry has been in the north of the country, and he's heading south towards Judea and the eventual destination of Jerusalem. And it's a journey that he is fully aware of will lead to his arrest, torture, and death. And as they travel, Jesus is teaching his disciples about his mission as the Messiah. And he's teaching them what it, discipleship means. What does it mean to follow this Messiah? And the two are inextricably linked together. Um, three times in a few chapters, Jesus predicts his death. But each time, the disciples just don't get it. They don't get it by a mile. 
after Jesus patiently told them for a second time about his suffering and death, they were having an argument about who is the greatest. Who's the goat? Incredible. I mean, at the, at the very least, it's just very crass, isn't it? Uh, on a personal level, imagine you're playing golf with some of your closest friends and then you reveal to them that you've actually got terminal cancer and the doctor says you've got six months to live and after a brief silence, they start arguing together about who's going to get your golf clubs. It's at that level of crassness, isn't it? But not only is it insensitive, but it reveals a serious problem with pride. And the reason for showing this is all one unit is for us to see that when Jesus is talking about the danger of hell, it is in the context of this argument of who is the greatest. Uh, This is such an important section for any who want to understand what Christian discipleship is really all about. And I've got, surprisingly, I'm a preacher and I've got three points. I've got three points this morning. Firstly, discipleship is not about serving. No. Discipleship is about serving, not status. I'm glad we got that sorted out. It's about serving, not status. Do you see how Jesus radically redefines what greatness is in verse 35? Anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. I mean, this is radically different to the way we think, isn't it? Our world sees greatness really about being first and about being served. It's about being ushered uh, through the economy section, through the business section into the first class cabin where you're going to be served on hand and foot. Uh, It's about getting the executive pass into the VIP lounge where you get all those extra goodies. We've got a whole system in life that rewards those who go higher up the chain, haven't we? Uh, The higher you go, the more perks you get, the greatness is measured in in your fancy job titles, in the amount of uh, earning power that you have, uh, how many people uh, work for you, how many people follow you on social media, uh, lose and you go home in the black taxi, win and you ride with Lord Sugar in the Rolls Royce. I mean, that's, that's the way greatness is measured, isn't it? But Jesus says that greatness in God's kingdom is about being the last one to be served. It's to be the one who is the servant of all. To follow this Messiah, we are to be like the Messiah. For that's exactly what Jesus is like. And we saw last week in the Transfiguration that Jesus gives them a glimpse of his divine glory, the the glory that he has as the Messiah, the Son of God. Uh, Remember, Daniel chapter 7 spoke of his glory, uh, this one who approaches the Ancient of Days, who's given all authority, glory, and sovereign power, the one whom all the nations and all the peoples uh, will worship, whose kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom that can never be taken away. And this is who Jesus is. Here is the glorious Son of God, Why did he come? He came to offer his life in sacrificial service of the very least. This is what the Messiah 
is like. Offering himself to suffer many things and be killed and on the third day to rise in order to save unimportant people like me. Amazing. And if that's what Jesus is like, then obviously following him is going to look like that, isn't it? It's going to look like what Jesus already told us when he called to the crowds. If anyone wants to follow me, he must deny themselves, take up their cross and, and follow me. And so very practically, if we want to be great in his kingdom, we're going to be those who are quick to serve others rather than waiting around until somebody serves us. What God values and, and King Jesus values in his kingdom is humility and servant-heartedness. And the key test of greatness is how we treat the least significant disciple. If I'm looking at you, it's not because I think you're the least significant disciple, right? But, but it's how we treat the least significant disciple. That's the real test whether we've really understood what this greatness is all about. And Jesus visibly demonstrated this to his disciples by putting a little child in the middle of them. Now before we get too sentimental, oh, a little child. Uh, you know, today, uh, as it was back then, of course, people loved their own kids. But, it, 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 you know, in terms of other people's kids, well, they were basically insignificant. Uh, no status, no possessions, no power equals no significance. Why would you bother with all those kids running around the streets with their snotty noses? And Jesus took that little child and wrapped his arms around that child. And he models what it is to welcome the very least. Look at verse 37. Whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. Greatness is seen in those who give themselves to humble, sacrificial service of the very least in the name of Jesus. And I would want to suggest that if we're going to work out who's the goat disciple at uh, Charlotte Chapel, which would be a strange conversation to have, let's be honest. But if we were to work it out, probably it's not going to be one of the ones you see standing up front in church. But it's those who faithfully, over years and years, are in the background or down in the basement teaching Sunday school or after church handling all the banking, uh, which nobody sees, or the people who come to church in order to spend 90 minutes of their life taking care of other people's snotty-nosed little children uh, so that their parents can sit peacefully and enjoy church. I think those are the greatest. Uh, it's those who serve the least. And disciples who give themselves to such service, do you know what? They find that there are wonderful spiritual benefits to giving such self-sacrificial service. Look at verse 37. Look who you're actually welcoming and serving as you welcome the least in the name of Jesus. You're welcoming King Jesus himself. You're welcoming God the Father who sent his one and only Son into the world. That's who we welcome when we welcome the very least in the name of Jesus. Jesus sees it. He receives it as service of welcome to him. 
But the challenge is there, isn't it, to us as who say we're disciples. How are we serving others in the name of Christ? Let's, let's you know, we've moved, what? So what? Now what? Now what? Who, who are you actually serving? Now, you know, mums have an easy time with this because they're always serving, aren't they? They're always serving. But let me ask you, who, who are you serving? Uh, do we sign up to serve others in the church? Do we welcome others? Are we the sort of people who, when we come to church, we welcome other people? We welcome other people who look different to us. Different ethnicities, different skin colors, different educational backgrounds, different classes and social backgrounds. Are we willing just to welcome people in the name of Jesus? Because such self-giving service of the least is the measure of true greatness in God's kingdom. So that's the first mark. People who know it's about serving and not about status. Secondly, it's about serving and not stumbling others. It's about serving and not stumbling others. Now you kind of hope at this point that the disciples are kind of looking at their sandals, a bit embarrassed about their argument about who is the greatest, but don't hold your breath. Look at verse 38. John bursts in. Teacher, we saw someone driving out demons in your name and we told him to stop because he was not one of us. Oh dear. (laughs) Maybe it hasn't quite sunk in yet. Not one of us. How different it would have been if he'd said, because he was not following you. But that's not what he says, is it? Uh, John betrays with his lips what an inflated sense of importance and ego the disciples had. They're still seeing their discipleship as a kind of, um, I don't know, an entitlement of privilege. They're part of an elite group, an exclusive club. And, and we can't have the sort of people who are, who are not, not one of us. Now, what was motivating John and the other disciples to try and stop this man? I think I detect a little bit of envy. Uh, Last week, we saw at the foot of a mountain, uh, there was a frustrated father. There was a, a son with an evil spirit that they could not cast out. And so perhaps it was rather galling. That uh, here was this unnamed, untrained man who was not one of the official disciples, and he was able to do it. I mean, we told him to stop. And we we all love to feel special, don't we? We all love to feel important to to protect our patch. I grew up in a church in Wales. Now, what I'm going to say now is more a reflection on probably me than the the, the church, but subtly over time, I developed that sense that uh, our local church was especially loved by God because we had the purest form of church life and and, and we were closest to what what church was supposed to be like according to the Bible. And so subtly I had the sense that all other traditions uh, were viewed as suspect and defective. And uh, if we heard, if I heard, you know, of a success going on, a fruit in another type of uh, church elsewhere, you knew they were compromising. That's the only reason they were getting results, is they were compromising. They were not one of us. Now, I'm not saying that everyone in the church thought that, but that's what I began to think in that environment. And so it was such a wonderful shock when I went to the um, Christian Union at university to discover that there were actually wonderful Bible-believing, Jesus-loving Christians who were Anglicans. 
I could not believe it. Methodists even. Charismatics. It was, it was such an eye-opener to me. It was a joyful discovery, of course. Now, the reality check comes again from Jesus. Verse 39. Do not stop him, Jesus said. For no one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me. For whoever is not against us is for us. So it turns out that the person that they're trying to stop is a true believer in Jesus. How else was he able to cast out demons in the name of Jesus? It turns out that there were more followers of Jesus Christ than their special group. That the kingdom of God is larger than our experience of it. Now I think our artificial chapter headings really obscure the punch of what Jesus is saying here uh, about John's actions. Look at verse 42. If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them if a large millstone were hung around their neck and they were thrown into the sea. You see, John's actions to stop and exclude this believer were not just rude, but they were spiritually dangerous. Now, do you see here that anybody who believes in Jesus is very precious to Jesus? See, actions done to the believer, whether good or bad, are taken personally by Jesus. We really are welcoming him when we welcome the least. See, the good done in verse 41, even the service of giving a cup of water to someone because they belong to Jesus the Messiah, it will be noted by him and receive a reward. Even a cup of water. Equally, the bad done to the least believer in the Messiah is also taken very personally and seriously by Jesus. This anonymous person who has been slapped down by John is one such little one. By excluding him, they could cause him to stumble in his following of Jesus and to cause a fellow believer to stumble and fall away from Christ is a very serious thing. This was the week where there was an independent report from um, child sexual abuse in the Church of England. And I think that verse 42 is a verse that should cause church leaders who've engaged in abuse of others, it should cause them great fear. To cause people to fall away from the faith rather than serving to strengthen their faith in Christ is a terrible thing. And it will bring a terrible judgment. So terrible, in fact, it would be It'd be a better fate to be thrown into the depths of a sea with um, concrete shoes on. Now this is such an important teaching, isn't it? Because how we relate to other Christians matters so much to Jesus. And each day our response to fellow believers has massive implications. There are great blessings even for the smallest acts of hospitality. And there are terrible dangers for those who wreck the faith of other believers. And true discipleship is about looking to serve other believers rather than to cause them to stumble because of our 
selfish pride or our sinful desires. That's the second mark. Serving, not stumbling others. Thirdly, it's about saltiness, not sinfulness. Now these verses are rather gruesome reading, aren't they? Let's look at them again. Verse 43. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go into hell where the fire never goes out. And if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell where the worms that eat them do not die and the fire is not quenched. Now these words are metaphorical, but the message is clear. Jesus is using extreme language because he wants us to take notice. Sin is serious. Sin takes you to hell. Hell is a terrifying reality. And he shows that in two ways. The picture of hell is one that the, 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 the Jewish people at that time would have been familiar with. Gehenna is actually a word used of a steep ravine southwest of Jerusalem. In the bad old days of Israel's past, um, against God's word, they began to do human sacrificing there. And also then it became kind of the, the rubbish dump where they would burn the rubbish and so Gehenna is a symbol of smoldering rubbish and putrefaction. But the hell Jesus describes is a place where this is ongoing. Where flesh-eating worms do not die. Where the fire does not go out. Now why does Jesus say this? Um, is he trying to frighten us? I should say so, wouldn't you? Uh, these are the words of the most loving person who's ever lived. And he loved his disciples so much that he wants to warn them that there's a fearsome reality that they should avoid at all costs. Now, when I was a theology student in uh, Sydney, Australia, uh, my parents paid for us to have a holiday in far north Queensland. We stayed in Port Douglas. We stayed in a beautiful house next to a beach. It looked like some scene from an exotic Bond movie location. It was amazing. Rainforest, beach, and we're right next to a river estuary. It was so beautiful. The only problem was that they kept putting up these huge big signs of scary-looking estuarine crocodiles. They were really scary. But let me tell you, if you'd gone into the sea and met one of the crocodiles, it would have been far worse. Matthew, you've never swum with crocodiles, have you? No. You wouldn't try it, would you? I'm talking to the marine biologist. He would not swim with crocodiles. Hell is such a terrible reality that we should take sin seriously. Very seriously. And disciples of Jesus are being warned about persistent, unrepentant sin. 
Jesus doesn't want his followers literally to chop their hands out or gouge their eyes out. You know, to even attempt such a thing is a sign of a significant mental health problem. Get help before you think about doing that. But this hyperbole is here to tell us that eternal life in God's kingdom is so amazing and the alternative is so frightening that we need to radically deal with sin in our lives. If we do not kill sin, sin will kill us eternally. There are many places in the Bible where we're urged to to mortify, to put sin to death to put our sinful actions and attitudes and desires, to put them to death. This language of ongoing cutting uh, and gouging tells us that it's a painful business to deal with sin in our lives because it feels so natural to us. It feels part of us, but it must be done, particularly with those sins that do feel natural to us. Uh, Jesus is telling us that discipleship does demand sacrifice. Denying ourselves, taking up the cross to follow Jesus is is telling me that I will experience selfish, self-centered desires and thoughts that I am not supposed to pursue just because I was made that way. There was a song that went something like that. Uh, No, you, you weren't made by God to sin, but our sinful nature is there because of the human rebellion and I have sinful desires and appetites that actually I must not satisfy that I must not pursue that I must deny in order to follow Jesus Uh, whatever that is whatever your persistent default sins are sharing gossip can be quite a thrill pornography promises excitement and pleasure It yields only shame and frustration, by the way. Both are immensely harmful to others and to ourselves. And this passage says that we need to deal radically with sin. If we do not kill sin, sin will kill us eternally. But to put these verses in context, the sin that prompts Jesus' warning here is the sin of pride. It's the sin of where I am at the center of the universe. The me monster. Me, 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 me. Uh, My concerns, my fame, my preferences, my desires, my business is asserted over everybody else, including God. Pride is so pervasive and devious a sin that we need to observe how it shows itself. And here are some signs. Number one, when our lives are full of conflict. Are we often finding that we're arguing with people? Are we finding that we're arguing basically to prove how great we are compared to them? You see me? You? You see, do you see that? Is that what we're doing when we're arguing, just to prove that to people? Um, are we often putting others down and exalting ourselves? Pretty good sign of pride. Uh, when we're exclusionary and dismissive of others, you know, not, not one of us. Do we find that we often have reasons to, um, to criticize others and to, and to sniff at other people's ministries? Yes, well. 
Are we hypersensitive about protecting our patch, our ministry, our reputation? It's pride. When we disdain and refuse to accept other believers as real Christians, it's, it's a sign of pride. The warnings of Jesus are directed to the most pernicious, insidious sin of pride. Unrepentant pride will damage other people and will take us to hell. And so by God's grace, we need to keep radically rooting it out of our lives. See, genuine disciples do not pursue sinfulness, but saltiness. Now, for us, salty speech uh, in, in some sections has become a euphemism for swearing. Forgive my salty speech. But the Bible means something completely different to that, right? In the Bible, salt and fire, are, I think, are pictures of, of purity and of being purified. And so Jesus uh, says, salt is good. Verse 50, salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can you make it salty again? Have salt among yourselves and be at peace with each other. See, this passage starts with arguing and Jesus is saying to them, be at peace. It all fits together. Christians who do not deal with sin in their lives become useless in the kingdom of God. Ah, I'm just heartbroken to hear of another high-profile ministry of a supposed evangelical leader that is being shown to be, well, he's, he's abused others. And how many ministries have been tarnished because pastors and leaders have not allowed the trials and stresses of life to purify them and to push them close to the Lord, but have used them as excuses to pursue sinful desires. We must get serious about dealing with sin in our lives, whatever it is, whether it's a sin of lust or gossip or pride. And instead of spending all our energies judging and excluding others, we should be spending our energies judging ourselves and excising sin out of ourselves. For only when we purge our pride will we begin to learn to live at peace with others. And that's the command of Jesus to disciples. Be at peace with one another. Now I can't finish at that point because I'm fearful that if I do we'll miss the gospel this morning. True disciples know that we can never cut out sin enough to get us into heaven. This is not a passage that's telling us that we earn our way to heaven by, um, uh, you know, by, uh, we'll never avoid hell and get into heaven by just cutting more of ourselves to bits. It's not saying that. Uh, in the context of Mark, you see, after we've figuratively chopped off our hands and our feet and gouged out our eyes, we've still got a fundamental problem with our sinful hearts. Remember that back in chapter 7? Out of the heart. I got to chop my heart out as well. What, what hope is there? Well, the key here is at the very start of this journey. Look back at verse 31 again. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days, he will rise. 
Why is he teaching them about what he's going to accomplish as he goes to the cross? He's going to do for them what they cannot do for themselves. He is going to the cross to pay the price for all their sin. He came to give his life as a ransom for many. And we can be sure of the kingdom of God and eternal life, not because we can deal with our own sin, because we never could, but because we've put our trust in Jesus Christ, who has fully paid for all our sin. Serving others and being salty in our lives is not how we get into the kingdom of God, but they are the marks of a genuine disciple who has entered the kingdom of God and who is following Jesus the Messiah. My friends, though these are sobering and warning words, his grace is greater than our sin. I want you to hear that. We don't have to leave terrified today. His grace is greater than our sin. And we know that we can joyfully serve him because Jesus paid it all. Let's stand. And if you're at home, I hope you're going to enjoy singing it. We're going to enjoy humming it here. Let's stand and sing. Save my lips shall still be.
Well, thank you so much for joining us uh, for this morning service. If you've got any questions, especially for the folks at home, anything we can help with, uh, do email the office at info at charlottechapel.org. We'd be only, glad, only too glad to serve you. Um, for those who've uh, got emails this morning about watching the services, you might notice there's no evening service included in that email. We've had a little technical issue with that, and we're working on that this afternoon. Um, you should get another email later today with details on how to watch the evening service, or you can go to our Vimeo site, vimeo.com forward slash Charlotte Chapel, and you should be able to access it there. Let me close with these words from the book of Revelation chapter one. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father, to him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen.